From the Pardis Institute of Jewish Studies, this is Pardis from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, Pardis alum. This week, Korach. This week, Rabbi Michael Hatton discusses Korach. Rabbi Hatton has prepared a handout sheet that you are invited to print out and use to follow along with the podcast. It's available from elmod.pardis.org. Rabbi Michael Hatton is a member of the Pardis faculty. And now, Rabbi Michael Hatton. Thank you, Larry. Parshat Korach introduces us to Moshe and Aharon's infamous cousin, who seeks to unseat the two brothers from their positions of leadership. Blessed with a true demagogue's sense of timing, Korach steps into the fray in the immediate aftermath of the catastrophe of the spies. The people of Israel recently denied entry into the Promised Land and condemned instead to perish in the wilderness are seething with disappointment, and Korach quickly seizes upon that discontent to advance his own narrow and personal political aspirations. Claiming to represent the people's best interests, he gathers around himself a disgruntled kaleidoscope of malcontents, some of them upset at the election of the tribe of Levi in place of the firstborn, others distressed by Aharon's seemingly selfish cornering of the priesthood, and still others dissatisfied with Moshe's ineffectiveness in averting God's wrath concerning the spies. Quickly things come to a head. Korach and his followers answer Moshe's challenge of the firepans, and 250 of them are summarily incinerated by divine fire. Datan and Aviram, two of Korach's most ardent supporters and Moshe's most bitter opponents, are miraculously consumed in a sudden earthquake that swallows them, their families, and all of their worldly possessions. The people of Israel, those who had thrown their support behind Korach and now bemoan their unnatural demise, are stricken with plague. Many perish before Aharon arrests the death by supplicating God with an offering of incense. The people, however, remain unconvinced. They still suspect the brothers of nepotism. God's appointment of the tribe of Levi as his ministering servants and of Aharon as high priest still angers them. And so God provides the people of Israel with one more sign. God spoke to Moshe saying, Speak to the people of Israel and take a staff from each of their tribal princes. These twelve staffs shall each be inscribed with their respective names. As for Aharon's name, inscribe it upon the staff of Levi, for there shall be only one staff for each chief of their clans. Deposit them in the tent of meeting, before the testimony where I meet with you. The staff of the man whom I have chosen will blossom, and thus will I bring an end to the complaints of the people of Israel who rail against you. Moshe spoke to the people of Israel, and each one of their princes gave him a staff, one staff for each tribal prince, and Aharon's staff was among theirs. Moshe deposited the staffs before God in the tent of meeting. On the next day, Moshe entered the tent of the testimony, and behold, 
the staff of Aharon from the tribe of Levi had bloomed. It gave forth blossoms and made flowers and then produced young almonds. Moshe removed all of the staffs from before God's presence and brought them to the people of Israel, and each one saw his staff and took it. Sefer Bimidbar, Numbers, chapter 17, verses 16 through 24. The reading of the above episode is straightforward enough. The people of Israel had questioned the veracity of the election of the tribe of Levi. They had ascribed it to Moshe's whims rather than to divine command. They had doubted Aharon's appointment to the priesthood. The sign of the staffs was therefore meant to counter both of their reservations. On the one hand, it was the staff of the tribe of Levi that came to life. On the other hand, that very staff was inscribed with the name of Aharon, thus affirming his appointment to the priesthood. At the same time, the sign of the staffs does raise a number of questions. Why did God choose to reinforce Aharon's election with a display of blossoms? What is the significance of the drawn-out description of the flowering process? It bloomed, it gave forth blossoms, it made flowers, it produced young almonds. Why, of all possible things, does the staff produce this fruit? Rashi addresses only one of the above issues, positing that there was special significance about the fruit of the staff. Rashi comments, Why did the staff produce almonds? Because it is the fruit that blossoms before all of the others. So too, one who criticizes the priesthood, his punishment is swift in coming. Thus we find concerning Uziyahu, the verse states that the tzavra'at suddenly shone upon his forehead. Rashi surmises that the sign of the almonds is a metaphor for haste. Of all of the fruit-bearing trees that are prevalent in the lands of the east, the almond is the first to bloom. The cold and wet rainy season has not yet come to an end in the land of Israel when its bright white or pink blossoms suddenly appear towards the end of January or the beginning of February, roughly corresponding to the Hebrew month of Shavuot. While there are typically five months or so that elapse between the first appearance of the almond blossoms and the final ripening of the nuts, in the fertile environs of the Tent of Meeting, the process was vastly accelerated. On the next day, Moshe entered the Tent of the Testimony, and behold, the staff of Aharon from the tribe of Levi had bloomed. It gave forth blossoms and made flowers and then produced young almonds. In other words, the haste here is twofold. On the one hand, the staff of Aharon produces almonds, in and of themselves powerful symbols of suddenness and speed. On the other hand, the staff does so overnight, further reinforcing the theme. Therefore, what had appeared initially as a drawn-out and unnecessary description of the blossoming process is now revealed to be another emphatic note of speed. When the verse indicates that, behold, the staff of Aharon from the tribe of Levi had bloomed, it gave forth blossoms, it made flowers, and then produced young almonds, it's not simply tracing the botanical process for us, but actually highlighting the fact that all of the steps 
that typically transpire incrementally from the first appearance of the blossom until the final completion of the fruit were here wondrously accelerated. Taken together, Rashi reads in the episode not only a straightforward statement of miraculous speed, but a threatening note of caution as well. Those that rise up against the priesthood and deny the ascendancy of Aharon and his descendants risk not only retribution, but swift and severe doom. It is now instructive to note that Rashi's identification of the almond blossoms with the theme of haste can be understood as informing the larger context as a whole. The theme of haste seems to underlie the episode of the rebellion from beginning to end. Korach quickly gathers his followers and rallies the people against Moshe and Naharon. Moshe just as quickly responds, Thus shall you do. Take firepans, place fire in them and incense upon them, and present yourselves before God tomorrow. Chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. When Korach and his men prepare on the morrow and gather a threatening throng, God tells Moshe and Naharon to separate themselves from them, for I shall destroy them in an instant. Verse 21. The brothers will cancel God's wrath, but it will reappear in the form of a sudden earthquake that consumes Datan and Aviram without a trace. As soon as Moshe finished his words... Verse 31, when the congregation of Israel bitterly bemoans the fate of Korach and his people, God's threat is repeated with sinister consequences. God spoke to Moshe saying, separate yourselves from this congregation, for I will destroy them in an instant. Quickly, Moshe bids Aharon to take his own firepan and to offer incense before God to stave off the destroyer. Run quickly to the congregation to atone for them. Chapter 17, verse 11. Aharon does as Moshe commands, for he ran to the midst of the congregation. Verse 12. Finally, the matter is conclusively decided by the speedy sign of the staffs, as I mentioned above. It's as if Korach's attempt to quickly whip up the people's frenzy to depose Moshe and Aharon are an initiative that he undertakes fully aware that time is not on his side. Students of history recognize that rebellions and coups are most successful when they are swift and unexpected. The end of many a provocateur has been spelled out by their hesitation at the moment of destiny, granting the ruling power the, the time that it needs to respond and then to regroup to muster its usually superior forces, though they are often more cumbersome, and then to decisively react. Here, however, it is God who meets Korach's challenge by repeatedly insisting upon a quick resolution of the conflict. In this way, the Torah indicates that God will intervene to protect his chosen ones, Moshe and Aharon, and he will not suffer the abuse of his selected servants. Significantly, the shkedim, or almonds of our passage, also occur elsewhere in the Tanakh as symbols of haste, as well as of divine retribution. 
The prophet Jeremiah, who was active during the final decades of the first temple, was invested into his mission with a startling vision. God's word came to me saying, Before you were formed in the womb, I already knew you. Before you were born, I already selected you. For as a prophet to the peoples, I have destined you. I said, Well, Almighty God, behold, I know not how to speak, for I am but a lad. But God said to me, Do not say, I am a lad, for wherever I shall send you, you shall go. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. God's word came to me saying, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I responded, I see a staff blossoming with almonds. God said to me, You see well, for I am determined, Shoked, to soon fulfill my word. From the north shall the evil soon break forth upon all of the inhabitants of the land. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. In the prophet's revelation, God's resolve to soon bring an end to the kingdom of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians is signified by the appearance of the blossoming almond staff. For Rashi, at least, there is no doubt that this vision was inspired by the episode of our Parsha, in which the blooming almonds indicated that God meant business. In their natural surroundings, almond trees are greeted as welcome messengers of the springtime. But here they have metamorphosed into more ominous heralds. The passage from Jeremiah demonstrates another dimension of the matter. We note how the almond staff, the shaked of the vision, which is a noun by grammatical standards, becomes a verb in God's response. I am determined, says God, shokedani. The verb form, inspired by the almond blossom, carries elsewhere in the Tanakh the meaning of fortitude, resolve, tenacity, and just as often it is used in a positive light. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 27 just as I watched over them to uproot and to knock down, to destroy, to demolish, and to afflict, so too I will now watch over them, eshkod, to build and to plant, says God. Tehillim, chapter 127, verse number 1, a song of ascents by Shlomo. If God will not build a house, then its builders have labored in vain. If God will not watch over the city, then its guards stay alert, shakad, in vain. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 34, Happy is the man who hearkens to me, to daily stand with resolve at my gates, lishkod, to wait at the posts of my doors. In light of the above examples, which portray shakad in a more positive and promising and optimistic light, there is another explanation. The Chizkuni, a 13th century commentary from France, perceptively explains the blossoming almond staff signified that from him, Aharon, young priests would emerge. Pirchei Kihuna. From him, that is Aharon, would descend priests who would wear the crown of the holy headband that seats. From him would issue priests who would perform their service with resolve and alacrity. Shokdim. Commentary to chapter 17, 
verse 23. In contrast to Rashi, who saw in the symbol of the almond staff intimations of destruction for all who would oppose the priesthood, the Chizkuni succeeds in interpreting the matter in accordance with its more organic optimism. The various stages of blooming that the Torah described, the flowering, the perach, the blooming, the tzitz, the almond fruit, the shkedim, are connected with their priestly analogs. In rabbinic literature, the young apprentice priests are called pirchei kihuna, literally the flowering of the priesthood. The holy headband of the high priest is referred to by the Torah as the tzitz, literally the blooming. The loving resolve that is often indicated by the verb shaked is associated with the priest's loyal and dedicated service in the Mishkan. In other words, Chizkuni detects in the entire episode not a warning to the opponents of the priesthood, but rather a positive charge to its members to perform their service with, determina with determination and love. Perhaps we can harmonize both of these views, that of Rashi and that of the Chizkuni. There is a duality associated with the respect due to Aharon and his descendants, and by extension to all those who labor in God's service. On the one hand, as God's ministers, they are to be respected and appreciated. Those that would oppose them should be opposed. But on the other hand, that respect is not an entitlement that must be extended even in situations when it is not deserved, those who outwardly align themselves with all that is holy and upright, demanding the respect due to their position, but themselves failing to internalize and to uphold its divinely inspired dignity, are not God's dedicated ministers, but rather only hollow and empty pretenders. Moshe and Aharon merit God's swift and determined support because they themselves embody that very same resolve to serve God and Israel with utter dedication. And those are the qualities that no Korach can ever challenge. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Rabbi Hatton. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. Jerusalem.